would like to read one thing before I sing today, and it's specifically from Psalms 103, verses 11 and 12. And the verse says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Of your mercy, 
Amen. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. <clears throat> this will be our third installment um, in this series on the Ten Commandments. Of course, we looked at the power and the place and the purpose of the Ten Commandments. Last week we considered uh, commandment number one, that thou shalt have no other gods before me. And today we want to look at commandment number two, which is quite simply, no images, no graven images or carved images. And uh, we'll read the passage in just a moment. I want to uh, clarify a couple of things. I don't want to go too far right here. Uh, there's going to be some redundancy this morning. and There's going to be some redundancy over the course of these first four commandments. Uh, because we're talking about our relationship with God and that thing which interferes with it, which is any other God or anything that represents another God or any other uh, way that we re represent God. And so uh, there's going to be some redundancy, uh, but redundancy, repetition, is the best teacher. And we know that these first four commandments, and we've stated it on multiple occasions, they're all God words. They are all pointing us towards God. They're speaking of our relationship with God. And they can be concluded uh, in, an, in an inclusive statement, which the Lord himself shared with us, uh, that we've looked at as well. That, and that is that we must love the Lord our God, how? With all of our heart, and then with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. If we're able to do that, with that stated, we would understand that when you love something with all of something, there's nothing left over to love anything else with. You love it with all of that thing. And so that is uh, the redundancy that we'll see. Also, when we think about uh, last week, we spoke about other gods, and we immediately lean towards uh, idolatry. That is where our mind goes. It is uh, it's the natural inclination of the passage or not only idolatry but idolatrous religions and so uh, when we think about graven images or carved likenesses or bowing down to them obviously some of those same thoughts are there i don't want you to uh, see that overlap this morning and think this is just warmed up over last week you could be here this morning and absolutely doing your level best to be compliant with commandment number one and intentionally and irrevocably walking all over commandment number two. It's a very similar aspect. When we say what is, who is God and what are other gods and what does the word have mean, it's a very similar aspect when we start defining what is a carved image. 
what is a, 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 a graven image. And so I want you to, to stay with me there. If you'll stand with me, we're going to read uh, real simply verses 4 through 6 in Exodus 20. And we'll read that uh, and then pray and ask the Lord to bless our time together. Starting in verse 4, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. I want to speak with you this morning. No images, graven or otherwise. And this is the concept. This is how we worship. Last week was who we worship. Today is how we worship. Would you pray for me as I pray for you? Ask the Lord to give you understanding and clarity. And uh, we'll pray together. Father, we love you this morning. Father, we recognize the task in front of us. We recognize uh, the complicity that we may have in some of these issues. Lord, I pray that as we go through this morning, that, Father, you would give us, uh, indeed, eyes to see and ears to hear. Father, that we would have a heart not of stone, but a heart uh, for you, seeking you, seeking to follow you. And God, I pray that as you illuminate for us these truths, that, Father, you'd give us not only the ability uh, to see them and to comprehend them, but, Father, the will to obey them. Lord, it's my greatest desire that we would leave today walking differently than when we arrived. Father, I pray you'd work in our hearts. These issues are so deep, Lord. They're so deep in our lives. God, give us bright light to reveal them. Help us, Lord, to see them clearly and be repulsed by them. Father, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You notice uh, immediately in verse 4 that there is a complete exclusion of the use of any image, graven or otherwise, in the worship of God. A complete Exclusion. He says there, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything in heaven, in earth, or under the earth, in the waters. No image. There is a complete exclusion. Although there are no exceptions to that because there is a complete exclusion, there also is a need uh, that we have to seek to understand the depth of image worship and what is image worship and how does image worship uh, reveal itself. And as we do, I believe that we'll be able to see some more uh, distinctive application to our own lives, places wherein we may recognize completely our own culpability and 
the continued use of idols and images within our own culture because it's, it's predominant. It is predominant. As stated, I believe that when we think about graven images, uh, we immediately think of religions that use carved images or graven images or images that are molded or handmade gods. And there's much about that in the scriptures. In fact, I was uh, meditating over this this morning and I thought, man, I, I've missed the opportunity. I should have just went right to 1 Samuel chapter 4 and talked about the the way the children of Israel viewed the Ark of the Covenant, that at the, the defeat, uh, they thought if the Ark of the Covenant was just here, we would win. And they brought the Ark of the Covenant, and then they were defeated again. And not only were they defeated, the Ark of the Covenant was captured. And the Philistines would take the Ark of the Covenant and stick it in their house of gods. And there's so much there that speaks to this idea of the graven image. And, and the Ark of the Covenant was certainly a mainstay for their worship. Within the Ark of the Covenant is contained uh, the picture of the resurrection of life and the picture of the provision of God and a literal copy of the Word of God. And on that mercy seat would be the, the presence of God for them. It was a legitimate object in which God used to commune with the people, but they did not worship God. They worshiped it. That thing that God gave them through which he could commune with them. And we see this over and over. They would stick that, by the way, that Ark of the Covenant in the temple of Dagon. And when they would go out the next morning, Dagon himself would be laying on his face in a worshipful mode. And they would stand him back up. And the next day they would go out and he would be laying again and and eventually with his hands and his head broken off. And, and there was a picture there that even that graven image had enough sense to know when to bow. The Psalms are written to bemoan the truth that these carved gods have eyes and they have hands and they have feet. But they can neither eat nor drink nor see nor hear. And if they are transported someone has to pick them up and carry them. That's the God you worship. The, the one uh, opportunity in the scriptures would speak of the man that, that carved the wood uh, to, to make his house and carved the wood to build a fire and then took the leftovers and carved the wood for a God to worship. And we say, well, we don't have those problems today, but we do. We have to recognize that the image Worship of today, it carries a lot of names, and, and it's not just these, but these are some, some in-your-face uh, type examples, but, but any of the Dharmic religions, Buddhism and, and Hinduism, they're all image worship. You see the little carved Buddhas everywhere? Guess what that is? It's a graven image. And those people are not just doing that. Some people are doing that for a fashionista example, I suppose. But many are doing it because they believe that that thing and what it represents can provide for them something that only God in heaven can provide. Our culture is not separated from it. There's also the native religions, and they have carvings. There are the voodoo-based uh, religions, and you say, well, that's just fairy tales. It's not. Very, very real. 
they have images. There's witchcraft, that is a form of false religion. It has images. The, the problem with those things is they become immediate associations, and so we disassociate ourselves from the real problems. I want to share this with you, too, that, and, and at the risk of being uh, ostracized, we've been, we've been beat up more in the past 10 years over this one comment, but I'm going to do it anyway because I want you to see the truth. The Catholic Church also uses images. They call them relics. Look it up. And every time I say something about them, I get hit with this accusation that I hate the Catholic Church, and I do not hate the Catholic Church. And by extension, I do not hate Catholics. I love Catholics. I hate perverted lies and religious lies that lead people away from the one true God. But they use them. They're very active. Venerated relics. You can look it up. The problem, again, with these immediate associations is that we disassociate ourselves from the commandment. We, we say, well, I don't have a Buddha. I don't have a Hindu temple spot. I don't have, uh, I'm not worshiping a, a crucifix. I don't have this, that, or the other, whatever it is. I don't have any of those things, so I can check this off my list. I'm innocent of this particular offense. And we stop seeking to understand the depths, and then we are easily targeted. A graven image, much like the definition of other gods, is anything, can be anything that absorbs your time, your energy, and your emotions, and your worship away from God. And so when we look at the strictly Western American culture, those graven images may take the form of silver and gold. They may also uh, take the form of fiberglass and metal plates. They may take the form of blued steel. They may wear a helmet. They may have strings in them or on them. Anything that occupies your worshipful emotions away from God is a graven image. Now, if you do an honest inventory, you'll realize that you have some of that in your life. And, and so we cannot absolutely absolve ourselves. We have to be diligent and to protect what belongs to the Lord. Because, as we stated, the commandment is a complete exclusion. So this is the first question for you this morning. What's the graven image or the carved God in your life? Is there one? Is there more than one? I would have a very difficult time agreeing with anybody that said there were none. The question is, what is it? What captures the tendency of your worship and focus more than God sometimes? That's a graven image. This is not a a native problem, this is not a European problem, this is not an Old Testament problem, this is a humanity problem. This is, we have a worshipful spirit, and it's always looking for something to worship, and if you don't give it the right thing to worship, it will worship the wrong thing. 
I think the, the interesting aspect of this, and we could just beat to death graven images, but I think that we're all adults, and I think that we're all relatively intelligent enough to comprehend what that looks like. I think it's very interesting, though, that we notice something about God in this passage. There's a defining character trait of God's love, and he says it himself in verse 5, you don't bow down yourself to them or serve them. Why? Because I, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. Do you see that? There's a, a very interesting thing that occurs there. That is, by the way, a defining character trait of God's love. You're perfectly in line, in step, to say God is a jealous God because it is stated multiple times in the scriptures. I've shared several of those with you there in your notes. And what we understand is that is not a negative trait. It's not a negative character trait. But we don't say about God, oh, he's so jealous. You might say that about me. I might say that about you. But we don't say about God, oh, he's so jealous. No, we say that God is jealous. What is the difference? Well, the difference is that God is righteous. He is holy. He is perfect. He is the epitome, the embodiment, the expression of truth and love and grace and mercy. So for his love to be a jealous love is a positive aspect. It should be desired because with the same jealousy that he loves, he also protects and he provides and he possesses and he pursues those that are his. There's this thing in the scriptures, and I don't want to spend a lot of time there, but you've heard the term. I also don't pronounce the term very well, so uh, prepare the laughter. I think it is anthropomorphic. It's got too many syllables in it for me. Uh, but uh, there is a facet of the scriptures in which there are anthropomorphic characteristics assigned to God, such as the strong arm of God, the, the mighty hand of God, uh, those things, the eyes of God, the ears of God. Well, this jealousy of God is anthropomorphic. God doesn't experience jealousy the way you and I experience jealousy because he is not a man. He is God. He is a spirit. What it is telling us, that word jealousy is relative to zealous, and it, is, it has heat in it. It is talking about the depth of the love that God has for you is more than just allowing you to escape and be taken away. He is a jealous God. I can remember hearing a TV personality. It was Oprah Winfrey. And she was promoting Eckhart Tolle's new work. It was a spiritual, heretical work that he was producing. It was founded in pantheism and everything being God. And if everything's God, I'm a thing, then I'm God too. So whatever I do makes me happy, that makes God happy. That's a, a, a southern synopsis there. Uh, but in the middle of that, uh, she said, uh, I just can't believe that God is a jealous God. I don't believe that's true. What do you mean you don't believe it's true? It's in the word of God, it's true. Do you understand that's the problem with these, uh, these uh, outliers and these irreligious folks or these folks that come up with a better plan? They have not embraced the fact that this is eternal truth. Yeah. Word to word, cover to cover, the whole thing. It doesn't matter whether you agree with it or not. It doesn't matter whether you can conceive of it or not. It doesn't matter whether it makes sense to you or not. It doesn't matter if there's any logic in it or not. What matters is God stated it. It is true. 
God is a jealous God. It's a character trait that is not negative. We've equated uh, jealousy with negativity, but it's not. It is saying that his love is, is ferocious and, and the depth of his love is an all-encompassing effect. And this is what I find so uh, interesting. We're fine with his grasp when it means protection and eternal security. And we'll claim that quick. Oh, yeah, I believe in eternal security of the believer. I'm in the hand of God. God's got me. No man can take me out of his hand. Well, that's true if you're born again. But that same strong hand that grasps, grasps you that no man can take you out of also possesses you. You are his. And he possesses you. And we're fine when it means security. But how do you feel about his jealousy when it means fidelity and diligence on your part? Because that's the request. That's the command. The command is, hey, don't have any other gods before me and don't worship me any other way than worshiping me in spirit and in truth is the way the Lord would say it. It is this concept, are you resistant to the jealous love of God. Is there ever a time in your life where you determine that just for today, I'm not going to belong to God. Just for today, I'm going to do what I want to do. Just for today, I'm going to express myself. Just for this moment, I'm going to do what I'm driven to do. Is there ever that time where you're comfortable or you're uncomfortable with the idea that he possesses you. We have this character trait of God. I want you to notice something else I think that we stumble over at times, and I've heard many arguments on this and may have even at some point in my life made an argument like this. He says there in verse 5 that he's a jealous God, Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Do you hear that? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children for three or four generations. That's what he says. It's, uh, this is the concept that I want you to see. Where idolatry is present. Where image worship is present, there is a continuing effect on the generations that follow. It, it stays. Now, this is the, the struggle. We, we recoil. I, I'm sure uh, that you do. I do. We recoil at the thought of the children being judged for the sins of the fathers and the grandfather. But the failure is in our understanding. Because the picture that he is painting is not the picture that the father did something wrong and God condemned him and that condemnation passed to the next three generations. The picture that he is painting is that the fathers did something wrong and the propensity to do that wrong thing passed to the next two or three or four generations. So they incur the same wrath that the fathers and the grandfathers incurred because they do the same sin that the fathers and the grandfathers. So it is that 
picture, we would say, well, if God uses what I did to judge my children, no, God is, God is telling you that what you do is either condemning or delivering your children. You are the, the connection to salvation. What you do in their lives, they understand. They're not being judged because of the committed sins. They're being judged for continuing to commit the sins. What is passed down is not condemnation, rather the propensity to continue in the same sin as their father. I think it's very interesting from a human nature perspective that we're very comfortable. We comprehend passing down wealth. We comprehend passing down title, family name, citizenship. You just list it on and on. But what you need to comprehend is that you're passing down a spiritual equilibrium as well. You're passing down a spiritual understanding. You're passing down a spiritual commitment. You're passing down a spiritual diligence. You are creating in the life of that child their standard of understanding when it comes to God and his place in their life. They learn that from you first. They learn it from the family first. As thinking about this this week, I heard someone talking about something their, their husband does because his father uh, is a connection to his father. And I was thinking about how we all have those things. About 25 years ago, I was a snap-on, I was a tool dealer, had a snap-on truck, and uh, first the first Christmas season that I came into, uh, several of the guys in my route, I worked a rural route, and they were deep-frying turkeys. That was back when that was kind of an art, you know, it was for everybody and their mama had a front tur turkey fryer. And uh, they had this, he had this smokehouse, uh, this particular guy, and a screen around it, it I don't even remember who he was. I don't even remember exactly where he was. But I can smell the place. I can remember the feeling of that place. And, and so working up to Thanksgiving as I was servicing him, he was talking about that. And I was like, man, I'll, I'll take two of those turkeys. And, and uh, I said, when can we get them? He said, you just come Thanksgiving morning and pick them up. They'll be fresh. I said, okay. And me and Dad, uh, we got together that morning. And we rode around. Look, I was 30 years, 35 years old. I wasn't a kid. But we rode around and we looked at stuff and we talked about things and we went to those stores and got some candy and we went and picked those turkeys up. Such a visceral memory. How visceral, preacher. Enough that the year after that, I bought my own turkey fryer and fried turkeys for years, and I don't even like to cook. I despise cooking. It's not even economical to fry a turkey. The oil is outrageous. But I did it every year. I don't even eat much of it. But I did it because in the moment I dropped that thing in there, that aroma came up, there was an immediate connection to that one moment. And you're telling me that the way you treat God and the way you treat Christ and the way you treat the church and the way you treat worship in your life, your children are not affected by that? They are absolutely, 
for the third and fourth generation. If you take it lightly, they will completely disregard it. And that's what this passage is teaching. That where idolatry is present, there is a continuing effect. There's so many examples right there that, that would just land squarely on somebody and they would think I did it to them. But Lord, I hope he puts it in your mind. Whatever the parent does in moderation, the children will do to excess. But in that, in that, that understanding, you have got to comprehend that the flesh is the modifier. The flesh is the modifier. So you can be moderately Christian, and your child will not be excessively Christian. They will be excessively non-Christian because the flesh always errs on the side of liberty. Always. Amen. You can sell out for the Lord. It doesn't mean your kid's going to sell out for the Lord. But their standard of reference will be so far to the right that the further they get away from the right, they'll feel like they're on the other end of the world. They'll be constantly drawn back to that standard. That's what this is teaching. These uh, behaviors and attitudes, they become a type of emotional nostalgia. It is, even if the behavior that we're if it's a behavior that we're not fully comfortable with, it becomes a connection to the previous. Wouldn't you desire for that connection to be the Lord and the worship of the Lord and the scriptures and the church and the spiritual behaviors that lead us closer to the creator? Because what we're talking about here is a legacy. That's what he's pointing out here. There's a legacy. Hey, he's telling the children, listen, when you choose that graven image, and they chose it often, they even took the things that God gave them and turned them into graven images. They had to destroy the brazen serpent because they were worshiping the serpent. When you do that, he said, you are creating a legacy that your children will suffer from for the next three or four generations. Is, wouldn't you... What kind of legacy are you creating for the next generation of your family? You say, man, this is so heavy. Let me tell you something. Eternity is heavy. A wayward child is heavy. A child that's caught up in sin is heavy. There's no parent sitting around thinking, boy, I sure am glad I enjoyed my kid. They're out there living a life of Satan now. I'm so happy for them. It doesn't happen. It's heavy. It's miserable. Well, how do I stop it, preacher? You set a legacy in your family that directs them to a proper worship of the one true God. Is your legacy of true Christianity, belief, faith, ownership of God, or is it a legacy of casual religion that is dictated by convenience? Lastly, there's a comforting truth here. Praise the Lord for that. He says there in verse 6, and this is the contrasting statement to the latter portion of verse 5, and 
showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. So is there, is there a negative legacy that is impacted by the jealous love of God and does it carry on for three or four generations? Well, certainly there is because it says so. Is there a path away from that? Well, sure there is because he says not only that, but I also show mercy unto thousands. This is the comforting truth is that God has extended mercy. He's extended mercy. Do we all suffer from these problems? We do. Are we all captive to these problems? We are not because Christ died for you, as you, and in your place, redeeming you from sin. That is an extension of God's mercy. And that's what this passage says. Well, yes, I do. I see it carry on for generations, but I also show mercy unto thousands of them. Is that thousands of people? Well, in context, it would be thousands of generations. This is three or four generations, but I show mercy to thousands of them, generations. This is showing the overwhelming mercy that God has extended. No matter how we fail, he's merciful if we just repent. Well, what kind of mercy? Well, it's a steadfast mercy. And it is extended to thousands of generations. So the question that we'll close with is if you performed an honest assessment of your spiritual legacy this morning or your relationship with God or your diligence to walk in the spirit, would you be fully satisfied with where you are and what you are and what you are doing? Because this is the comforting truth. God has extended mercy. So whatever this moment to the past holds, you can repent. And it will be taken as far as the east is from the west. Give it to God, let him get rid of it. But repentance means living a life of repentance. Living in repentance. Repent now and lead those that are following you and somebody's following you. Lead those into the light. Did that land on you this morning? Because it landed on me this week. You feel that little bit of sting? Is the spiritual legacy that you're leaving desirable? Has there been some sort of carved image that has arisen in your life? Have you resisted at some level the possession of God? Repent, because he says steadfast mercy has been extended. Would you stand with me this morning? Your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. What would be your prayer this morning? Would your prayer of repentance be for the way you have reacted towards God's possession? Would it be for the way you've modeled God in front of your children? Would it be for your worshipful attitude or lack thereof? What would it be? Surely there is a value of repentance associated with this truth. Would you repent this morning to the Lord? And let's walk out of here walking differently than we walked in. Father, I pray you bless this time of invitation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The altar's open this morning.